love to worship, whether you're at home or gathered here in the sanctuary on this rather drich day, it's good for us to gather in God's presence and to know that by the Holy Spirit, he is amongst his people, not just in our own fellowship, but up and down our land throughout our country. Just one or two wee bits of intimation. First of all, some of you will be aware that we are talking, or at least the government is talking about putting us into tier four um, of the lockdown. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. But nonetheless, um, if it does happen, oh, Ken, could you just see Anne Weil and just make sure she's okay? Thanks. Um, that if it does happen, then that shouldn't affect the congregational gatherings as long as we keep up, we've kept our numbers down to about 20. And so as long as you keep to that number or less, then we should be able to carry on everything that we're doing, okay? Um, if there's anything different, then Helen will put out an email about that and obviously I'll say something about that. Um, but at the moment, hopefully, thankfully, uh, it should allow us to continue. That's one of the reasons why I was very keen. We kept things down to a very relatively low number, but had a lot of different things during the week. So this past week, we had different times when we could have remembrance and different numbers of people came at different events. And that continues this coming week, and God willing, will continue over the period. Um, we have got a meeting of the session in a few weeks' time when we'll talk about um, arrangements for Christmas, for um, um, how we're going to celebrate communion, things like that, and, but that will be intimated to you. And you'll hear about that in email or again me from the pulpit. That's those intimations. And um, also just to encourage you, to a positive bit of news. Um, yesterday, Mega was held on Zoom. You know our work that the Karen and our team does with um, young people. It was held on Zoom yesterday. A good number, twenty young people were associated with that, along with their families. And so that was very encouraging. And um, it all went, went very well. The, re the story was the story of the flood, which perhaps is very apt considering the weather. Um, but nonetheless, it reminded the young people, and indeed, as I say, their parents who were watching, of the one who comes and rescues us from, from all sorts of calamities and issues and challenges in life. And so be thankful. Although we are living in challenging times, we were able to be able to have um, that yesterday. And so that, that was good. Um, I think that's all the intimations. So let's pray together. As we come together, O oh God, our Father, this morning, we thank you that wherever we are located and in whatever circumstance we are in, that in Jesus Christ we are still very much in your presence and part of your family, not just here, but throughout our world. We thank you for encouragements in the midst of these challenging times. As we hear the young folk in the hall, we thank you for part kids and we thank you for our children. We thank you for the mums and dads and for the families that surround these young people. We thank you for yesterday and for Mega and for the encouragement of that and for the way that has contacted with families that wouldn't normally come to a church, certainly wouldn't come on a Sunday morning. And we thank you for Karen and her team who are involved in all of that. We thank you that we've been able to be open and continue to have these gatherings, not just on a Sunday, but for those who are coming to our fellowship groups in person and also those who are coming into the church during the week for times of quiet and for the devotionals. And we thank you for this past week and for the good number of folk who at various times and in various ways 
gather together. We thank you that in Zoom we can continue to minister and connect with others, both today on the service and afterwards as people chat in Zoom, and also for the fellowship groups that meet on that format. So we do want to count our blessings. We thank you for sustaining us as a fellowship, for the way that you brought one or two through times of illness with COVID in the past, we think of those who are facing health challenges at the present time, and we commend them to you. We thank you for your sustaining grace, which is you every morning. And we thank you for all that is done, not just by the church, but in our community. Teachers, frontline workers, those who work for the NHS, and those who in so many other ways serve us in shops and attend to our practical needs, we thank you for all our community of which we are a part. And we value members of our community and their work and their ministry. And we thank you for them. And we thank you for this opportunity this morning. Gathered here or sitting quietly in our own homes, Lord Jesus Christ, our prayer is that you would be known in our midst. And not just in our midst, but congregations of your people as they gather up and down our land. Some in groups like this, some down south at the present time, having to return to meeting purely on the internet, but other places and other parts where there is freedom to gather in church sanctuaries. Lord, we thank you that by the Holy Spirit, you stand in the midst of your people to receive their praise and to speak into their lives. And in these days, we offer ourselves to you. Whether we're retired and spend time attending to our own affairs, whether we're working and have the responsibility of that, as well as caring for family, and looking after perhaps older relatives, whether we're going through a time of grief and sorrow, or going through a time of perhaps expectations and in other areas of our life we've got things to look forward to. Lord, whoever we are, we thank you that in Jesus Christ you know each one of us by name. And so, Jesus, stand among us in your risen power. And may this time of worship be indeed a hallowed hour. The psalmist, and we're going to be referring to Palm Sunday. I'll explain that in a few minutes. But the psalmist writes in Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Well, we'll give thanks to God, continuing in that prayerful spirit, as I believe we're going to hear the song, Hosanna, Hosanna.
And then lo and behold, on Monday, we heard the glad tidings. Uh, I hope you're all rushing, especially those of you who are over 85 and all geared up, Mrs. Thompson, um, for this vaccine that is supposedly 90% effective. Um, I have noticed um, that since Monday's announcement, when, of course, the shares of that particular company shot up through the roof and everything else, we actually haven't heard much else from the company uh, about a number of things. And so I think the expectations of having everything done by Christmas maybe was a wee bit um, rushed. But nonetheless, it is encouraging news that there has been some breakthrough in technology. And then on Thursday evening, Scotland got into the UEFA Cup, didn't they? Although I don't really count winning penalties. What do you think? You count that as worthy. Oh, right, you do. <laughs> well, no get into debate about that. So you're fired up, ready for next year. Yes, I believe they're coming to play in Scotland as well. They're going to be playing Hampden Park, yes. So it's been a good week. People's expectations have arisen. Some people's expectations got quite carried away. Did you see that up in Aberdeen in that pub? How that, what they call a beer garden. I believe the pub has been shut and the television screens have been taken away. But you saw them all celebrating, breaking all the social distancing rules and everything else. But they were certainly full of the joys. And so whether they went for a vaccine or winning Scotland winning a cup, well, it's been a good week. And we needed that. And I appreciate that. People's expectations, especially as we enter into potentially another lockdown and everything else. It's good to have things to look forward to. It's good to be expectant. It's good to be stirred up thinking there's hope or there's light or there's some prospect of some, something happening which is going to cheer our spirits. Expectations are raised and hopes that change and good will happen have been stirred. And we obviously hope and pray that that will be the case, certainly as far as a vaccine as to what Scotland does in the UEFA. Well, that's in the hands of higher powers. But the problem with expectations being raised and hopes being stirred is that they have to be fulfilled. Or else the result is people become quite cynical and disillusioned, either switched off are downright hostile. And that is actually part of what happened on Palm Sunday and in Holy Week. And over these next few Sundays, as we approach Advent and the Christmas season, we're going to, under the heading, it's not the same heading I gave to Gregor earlier this morning or last night, under the heading, Who is He?, we're going to look at the various stories in the Gospels, particularly, various things that Jesus said as he journeyed through the beginning of events of Holy Week to cast light on who is this Jesus, this Advent King. This one who comes and was born at Christmas, at least we mark his birth at Christmas. Who is this Jesus? And I would want us this morning as we read the story of Palm Sunday to discover first and foremost that this is a Jesus who shatters expectations and who does not fulfill what we think he should be and do. So let's read together from Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And we're going to read through part of this story. So let's hear together. The first 11 verses we'll read just now as we hear God's word. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And we will continue to read through the passage in a few minutes. If you were wanting to set a scene of stirring up people's expectations and of their hopes of some radical change, then actually you could not have done anything more than what Jesus did on Palm Sunday. For us, perhaps, although most of us are church people and we know something of the story, but for most of us, perhaps, we're not fully aware of all the background and all the significance of riding through that gate into the holy city. It actually went right back, of course, to the time of King David when he, as the victor king, rode into Jerusalem, into the city that was there then, although, of course, it was rather transformed by him and by King Solomon. But as he took that city and therefore established the Davidic, Davidic king and Israel as it was known. And of course, the significance of that, that was a vital point in Israel's history. They became that nation with a king to rule over them, that nation of promise and that nation of new beginnings and expectation. But of course, there were other times since David's reign when, of course, other people had entered through not-so-good times when the Greco Persian Empire spread through the ancient world in the period that really is in between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The victors there rode through that gate into Jerusalem and then began to pillage the city and carry out very heinous acts even on the altar and the temple. And then the city was delivered. Judas Maccabeus entered into the city through that holy gate and led to an overthrow of this Greco-Persian empire and establishment for a season of Jerusalem as a free city, only for his time and for his freedoms to be snatched away as the Romans rode through that gate and took Jerusalem and took that whole country and became made a part of the Roman Empire. So you see what I mean? That, that riding into the gate, if you wanted to set peace anything that would cause a stir and get people thinking and doing, this is it. A fulfillment of King David and also perhaps a promise. A promise of deliverance. Again from the gospel records, but also for other records written, Josephus and others writing about this time, there was growing dissatisfaction, growing resentment at the oppression of Roman rule. 
people were becoming more and more unhappy of the taxes and everything else that were laid upon them. And so there was that desire to be, have these restrictions lifted and liberties to be regained. And the vital hope that someone or something would bring an answer stirred people, understandably so, and gave them hope that change would happen. But of course, Jesus didn't follow the expectations of that. We know, of course, the events of Holy Week, and we know what that led to. But even here, look what he comes in. He comes in on a colt, a young donkey. He doesn't ride on a white charger. He doesn't come at the band, at the head of a band of army, the motley crew of disciples and others who journeyed in certainly didn't look like that and didn't even think they were like that. And while he accepted people's praise and they knew the script, they they knew the script, they knew what they were to quote as Jesus came in, quoting from Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna the highest heaven, as they spread their cloaks on the road, where others spread branches they had cut in the fields, all the semblance of a regal entry and of a you David reigning in Jerusalem who would reestablish Israel and bring into a time of new promise, all of that, the actors played along and Jesus played along but of course we know not just from Holy Week but from what the gospel writers tell us that Jesus had already forewarned the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem not to become a Davidic king reigning in a palace and getting rid of the Romans but that he must journey to Jerusalem and suffer and be betrayed and be crucified and die Perhaps one of the big reasons why that same crowd, at least many of them who welcomed Jesus on Palm Sunday, were so easily moved to shout for his death at the end of the week is because their expectations, their hopes, what they thought was going to happen very evidently were not going to be fulfilled. And the Romans, fearful of the mob, And the Jewish authorities, fearful of the mob, stirred up and having nowhere to express their frustration, gave them a choice. Either set free your freedom fighter, Barabbas, or to crucify this big disappointment who's leading us nowhere and perhaps leading us into terrible disaster, Jesus. And of course they shouted for him, Jesus. Let's have Barabbas free and let's have this man away. It's always dangerous having expectations unfulfilled and hopes dashed. And it's always dangerous even as Christians when we have our expectations of who Jesus is and think that he's going to act in a particular way and going to conform or fulfill what we think he should be about and do. So let's read on and see what happens. Verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. 
On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, Have faith in God. If the crowds were stirred and they had their expectations of who Jesus was and what was this was going to mean for them and their city. So the disciples had their expectations or at least their hopes. Again, we read especially from the other Gospels that there was a growing sense amongst the disciples, of course, that eventually what Jesus had been saying for weeks and months before was beginning to enter in and that this journey to Jerusalem was not going to end up well. Always like the wee bit in John's Gospel where, Tim, where Thomas, doubting Thomas in a sense, poor man, he was just somebody who was a thinking kind of character, said to the rest of the disciples when Jesus said he was going to Jerusalem, well, let's go along with him. We're his mates and we'll die with him. And, you know, he thought, well, you know, let's, we're loyal, so we'll go with them. But really, you know, this is all going to end up in a bit of a disaster. And their expectations had continually been challenged during the time that Jesus went with them. That's why he spent so much time with the disciples, teaching them. Even when we read in the temple, when Jesus was teaching, the majority of folk, and if you've ever watched any of the films, Jesus, Nazareth, or any of these films, however, maybe they're not perfect, nonetheless, they helpfully portray for us Jesus in the temple courts, and people gathered round during the events of Holy Week. And in that crowd were the disciples and other fellow travelers. And as Jesus spent time with them, he was traveling trying, indeed seeking, to help them to begin to think through so that their expectation of who Jesus was and is would be transformed. Of course, it was only fully transformed after the resurrection. And so they were confused. I think that's best to say. They were uncertain. Peter, particularly, is often seen as the man who was bold in so many ways and yet fooled, like all of us, many times with all sort of contrasting feelings inside. And they certainly would have been confused by what happened to the fig tree. Remember, seeing in the distance a fig tree, verse 13 in leaf, Jesus went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples heard him say it. And later on in the morning, the next day as they went along, they saw the fig tree with, with, with withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus said, have faith in God. What kind of Jesus is this? What kind of Jesus curses a tree that should really have been bearing fruit anyway? And even more than that, and again, the symbolism here is so vital. The fig tree was one of the symbols of Israel, along with the vine. A, a tree that was to bear fruit in due season, but it wasn't the season. 
Was Jesus in a bad mood? Was Jesus under stress? Was Jesus frustrated? You can imagine all the different feelings and thoughts that went through the disciples. Or was Jesus challenging the very bedrock of what the disciples believed? That Israel, this vine, this fig tree, was withering. And that despite the crowds that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, he knew what lay before him. He knew what was in the hearts and minds, not only of the crowd, but of the leaders and of his disciples. Remember, at the Last Supper, he knew that Judas would betray him. And seeing through all the panoply of appearance and the shout of the crowd, and yes, the genuine loyalty of the disciples, there was a dying going on during that week. That Israel, the land of promise, was a withered tree. People often talk about the new normal after this time of crisis and challenge. Well, who knows? We certainly can't say this is particularly normal, is it? We can't even sing along to Hosanna, Hosanna. But whatever life will be like once a vaccine is here or whatever, in many ways, things will never go back to the way they were for a host of reasons. And God is in that, and he's in that calling all of the world, but also particularly his people, to think through whether our expectations, whether our understandings, whether our notions of what God is in the business about really are what he is in the business about. Shoring up what we are familiar with and comfortable with and feel safe with. A fig tree that speaks of what we know in the past. What a new thing. The burning bush, the symbol of a reformed church, continually being consumed and being renewed. In the midst of all of that confusion and uncertainty, Jesus says to us, as he said to the disciples, have faith in God. So if the expectation of the crowd was to lead to disappointment, the expectation of the disciples was a increasing confusion and uncertainty and a stripping away of much of what they thought the kingdom was all about. What about the religious leaders? Well, again, we know the story. Jesus goes into the temple. And begins driving out those who are buying and selling there. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And we read that the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Well, if there was any group of people whose expectations very quickly had turned sour, it was the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Any attempt they might have had at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry to make him one of their own. You know how institutions love to do that. The church 
institution can be as bad as any institution, whether it's government, whether it's the civil service, dare I say, whether it's even the NHS, any institution very easily would draw people and make them one of their own to conform to whatever is the way of thinking and the way of responding. That's how they survive. That's how they keep their power. That's how they establish their security. But any attempt by the chief priests and the teachers of the law to do that with Jesus was very quickly rebuffed. He was not one of them. He was always an outsider. And he would not conform to their ways of doing God or religion. And this came to a fore as he went into the temple. The, the very bastion of, of faith as far as they were concerned. The very symbol of Israel's identity as God's people through all the rituals and the business, the money-making business of the sacrificial system within the temple. Jesus overturns the table. Because, of course, there was a different currency inside the temple courts as there was outside, and the exchange rates were only very favorable. And he reminds them and calls his disciples that his house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, not an exclusive club for those who are like-minded and are really in it for the money. Jesus turns things upside down. Does this seem a bit uncomfortable? I've got a feeling for some of us listening this morning it is. Because it's not the expectation we have of Jesus, is it? The meek and mild Jesus that perhaps we learnt and thought about in Sunday school and yet listen to Jesus. Matthew's Gospel, 10 and 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn, and he quotes for the book of Micah, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever there loses their life for my sake will find it. I was looking for a reference. Maybe you're like this. Sometimes you remember things as they were in the authorized version. Even I do that. And I was looking up the NIV and looking in the book of Acts. And my concordance, a very exhaustive concordance in the book of Acts. For, and I came across a verse and I knew that, that wasn't, it wasn't in the book of Acts the way I remember it. I'll read it to you from the NIV. Acts 17 and verse 6. The, the statement, the, the comment on what was happening by the church, from the church at that time. We read that when they gathered together there was a, a crowd in Thessalonica stirred up against the, the believers. And the city officials shouted out, These men, Acts 17 and verse 6, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed into his house. And I thought, that's not how I remember. So I looked up the authorized version. You know what it says in the old authorized version? These men are turning the world upside down. When was the last time the church of Jesus Christ in Britain turned our nation upside down? When was the last time you turned the world upside down? I turned the world upside down. 
challenge the expectations, the norm, the establishment where people find comfort and their security and the norms of thinking that are so blinded they cannot even see the hand of God at work. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing. And my friends, if nothing else out of this COVID, if as a nation, we don't critically look at turning things upside down and looking radically at so many of the institutions we think are so precious, including the institutions of the church, they'll all have been a waste of time. The Jesus who turned the tables upside down in the temple calls his church and his people to be those who are never satisfied with what's comfortable or safe or the establishment. How often, as we'll see as we journey through these verses, how Jesus challenges the church to step out of the establishment. Thank God we're in a church that was built by United Presbyterians who certainly weren't establishment. That's at the heart. Who is this Jesus? Oh, the baby Jesus in the manger. He fulfills our expectations, all gooing and everything else. We don't have a wee cuddle. Isn't that nice? But as we'll discover, the Lord of glory, the great I am, doesn't fit entirely into what we expect and feel comfortable. We're going to listen to another song now, and so we'll go over to Who is he in yonder stall? Someone safe, not going to rock the boat. Dependable. Meets what we want. Fulfills our expectations. No, Lord, that's not who is lying in that manger stall. Or who entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Or who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Or who by his Holy Spirit is amongst his people today. And we thank you that as we read your word and we allow you to speak to us through it, we see that. The Jesus who journeyed into Jerusalem on that colt of a donkey, who received the messianic praise because that was his due, but knew that the Messiah that the crowd who were shouting at wanted wasn't him. who cursed that tree, not because you were in a bad mood, because it powerfully testified to the deadness and the withering of spiritual life amongst God's people. And who called the confused and perplexed and wondering disciples to have faith in God. And so we hear your word to us today. In the midst of these challenging, confusing times, with expectations and hopes as well as fears and dreads. With understandable attraction to 
an institution or to an establishment or the way things were. Lord, as I've been reflecting on your word this week, how I thank you I'm standing in the pulpit of a church that was never part of the establishment, really. Born out of those who left the established church in the 18th century. And who today acknowledge publicly, as we've heard here in various official occasions from the United Free Church, that there is only one king and head, Jesus Christ. And so in these days, by your Spirit, as we journey into Advent and Christmas, that season of hope and expectation, come afresh and in a new way give us you hope and you expectations. Founded not on our own self and needs, but upon the facts of who you are. King of kings and majesty. And now may that king of kings majesty, the one who is the ruler of heaven and earth, the one who was brought again from the dead, and the one who comes to live within the life of his people, may that grace of that Lord Jesus Christ and the love, that transforming love of God the Father, and the empowering, miracle-bringing presence of the Holy Spirit rest upon us and dwell amongst us this day and forevermore. Amen.